Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Morning, everybody. Everybody awake? No? <laughs> I heard a no. Some, somebody out there. Ah, uh, yep. I'm with you. I'm not a morning person, but uh, hopefully you can get awake here in a second by the Word of God. If you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking Mark 3, 20 through 35 is where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 3, 20 through 35. And I was, as I was studying this passage, I had three things on my mind. You ready for it? Crowds, mobs, and the news. Crowds, mobs, and the news. It seems like every time I turn on the TV in the last few years, I see something about crowds, mobs, and the news. I mean, goodness gracious, you can't hardly turn on the TV and hear anything about what's going on in the world around us about hearing something to do with one of those three. I think it was just a couple of months ago, after the Roe v. Wade decision, Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court Justice, was eating at a steakhouse there in D.C., And his family was run out of the steakhouse because he knew that a a crowd turned into a mob outside of the steakhouse had had pushed him out. That was threatening uh, his life. I mean, he learned very quickly in our world, you have to be concerned with crowds, mobs, and the news. And I was thinking about this, even in my own life, maybe even not from a negative standpoint, do I have any examples of when I've sort of had a crowd moment or a paparazzi kind of moment. And it turns out I could think of one that actually came from my time at Liberty. I actually shared it with Mark uh, when he was on the dorm with me. I don't see him in the room here to confirm if he remembers this. Uh, But when we were on the dorm at Liberty, uh, there was this sort of hush that fell on the hall one day. And we all were sort of clamoring, hey, somebody's coming to town, who is it? And then I found out it was Britney Spears, okay? This was at the height of her celebrity. I know she's had a comeback recently, but I'm just saying, for a college-age guy, right, uh, Britney Spears was in town. It was a big deal. And so everybody decided in Lynchburg at Liberty at that time, hey, we're going to go out. We're going to try to you know, find Britney Spears when she's eating dinner. So apparently she was dating someone from Appomattox, and she ended up at the neighbor's place restaurant. And so you know, the way things go these days, if you don't get a selfie with her, it didn't happen. And so we all go out and try to find Britney Spears. Uh, You know, she ate a salad. It was a whole big thing, right? Uh, So that was my first celebrity paparazzi moment. Uh, The second one that was more recent, I guess this has been a few years ago now, I I found out that Trey Gowdy, uh, who is a a prominent congressman turned judge, and he's been been a prosecutor, and he's a constitutionalist I really respect, he was going to be at Liberty's campus, and he was going to do this special speech on constitutional originalism. And I really wanted to be there. And like, once again, here I am, fangirling, trying to get a selfie with someone. Just instead of Britney Spears, it was a congressman, all right? Uh, and so I show up to this speech. I get there early. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I'm going to get up front. Uh, you know, I'm going to definitely get to meet him. Uh, and sure enough, he gets done with the speech. And he gets off the platform. The, 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 the crowd was packed, and he gets swarmed. 
He gets swarmed with all these students. And from the platform to the back of the room and out the door, I couldn't even get close to him because there's so many people mobbing him as he walked across the room. Now, here's the thing. The celebrity of Britney Spears pales in comparison to the ministry of Jesus. And so does the political importance of Trey Gowdy. When Jesus initiates His three-year ministry, I mean, we're talking about supernatural displays of healing, casting out demons. The rightful Davidic king has arrived. The prophesied Messiah. I mean, we're talking about the greatest preacher who's ever lived is on the scene. So you can imagine that the electricity in the air when Jesus comes to town is going to draw a huge crowd. I mean, we see this throughout Jesus' ministry, right? I mean, there are times He has to get out in a boat to get away from people just so He can have enough space to preach. There are times that people have to climb up in sycamore trees to see over the crowd just so they can get a glimpse of Him. And there are even times when people, uh, dare I say a mob, decide that they're going to take Jesus and make Him king by force. And so Jesus has to flee the scene to get away from them. So crowds, mobs, and the news was a problem and concern even during the time of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. So we're going to look at that today. And the interesting thing about uh, how this worked itself out in Jesus' ministry is that you've got this crazy dynamic. For some people, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem uh, and they're waving the palm branches, this is the most joyous event that could ever happen uh, in their lives, right? This is the biggest deal. This is the coming of the Messiah, so on and so forth. But on the flip side, for many others, this represents a major religious and political threat to Jesus' opposition. So that's the kind of dynamic that we're talking about with these crowds uh, following Jesus and His ministry. So before we get into the text, let's spend just another moment in prayer if we could. Father, I pray that You would bless the proclamation and preaching of Your Word this morning. I pray that You would use me. Uh, help me to speak clearly and to articulate Your Word and not my Word, uh, but Your Word. And so I pray for encouragement where there needs to be encouragement, edification where there needs to be edification. Um, and um, I, just, I just pray that Your Word would not return void this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so when we get to verse 20, this is very early in Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is just kind of getting off the ground in terms of His preaching ministry at this point. Okay, He's already been anointed uh, by the Spirit. You know, so, so we're getting off the ground here. And in verse 20, we're going to start to see how His family reacts to all the attention Jesus gets. Look at verse 20. Now Jesus went home, and a crowd gathered so that they were not able to eat. When his family heard this, they went out to restrain him. For they said, he is out of his mind. Okay, let's let that sink in just a minute for a second. Where's home at this point? Well, Jesus is operating out of Capernaum. Probably Simon and Andrew's house there. It had become sort of a ministry center. Uh, it became sort of home base for all of the preaching ministry that he was going to do. And so, crowds had already started to gather, so much so that he couldn't even eat at times. 
okay? He couldn't even eat. And his family hears that he's coming back into town in Capernaum. And remember, they're in Nazareth, 30 miles away. They hear that Jesus is coming back to the ministry at home base. And they decide that they're going to make the 30-mile trek to come and visit Jesus. Now, who are we talking about here? Probably his mother, probably his siblings, and some close family friends is what we can piece together from the text. And so, why did they come? The passage says they came to restrain him. Okay? They came to restrain him. And if I had to guess, I would guess that their motivations here are pretty complicated. You know, Mary being his mother, it goes a long way when you get visited by an angel and the angel tells you you're going to give birth to a son even though that you're a virgin, right? That goes a long way to persuade you that this is in fact the Messiah. I don't think that she doubted that. I don't think that Mary is the one that's coming necessarily to restrain him so much as probably this is being pushed by his siblings and so forth. But nevertheless, she's coming as well with, with sort of that perspective. But think about this from the siblings' point of view. Now, they, they're saying that they believe that he's mad. Now, is it that they actually think that he's mad, or are they just trying to preserve the family name, or is it that Jesus is eliciting so much attention, uh, politically speaking, that they know that he's in danger, so saying that he's mad and getting him out of trouble could be helpful for Jesus himself. So they're trying to save Jesus from himself. I don't know exactly what's going on. The text doesn't tell us that much. But nevertheless, to put this in perspective from their point of view, imagine if you grew up with your brother, and your brother that, that you've been with all along, right, that you were right there uh, you know, with, with and your mom and dad's correcting you, maybe they never correct him because he's perfect, okay? Uh, he's the son of God after all. Uh, but nevertheless, he grew up right beside you, and now all of a sudden he's claiming to be the Messiah. And he's running around the Roman Empire claiming to be on a mission from God, Blues Brother style, okay? And he rarely ate, and he rarely slept like he should have. He has supernatural powers, he's casting out demons, he's making enemies out of the Romans and out of the Sanhedrin, and by the way, when he starts his earthly ministry in Nazareth, he gets up to the podium, opens up the Isaiah scroll, reads a passage about the coming Messiah, and tells all the Jews, today this passage has been fulfilled. I am the Messiah, in other words. That's kind of an audacious claim. In fact, uh, they wanted to kill him, and they chased him out of town. That's their experience up until this point. So from their point of view, I can kind of understand where they're coming from. They're going to come and try to save Jesus from the situation, pull him out of harm's way from the crowds and the mobs, and just say, hey, he's, he's off his rocker a little bit. He needs some help. Okay, So that's, that's kind of their perspective here. And any kind of way you cut it, whatever you say that their motivation was, even if possibly this is a good motivation in that they're trying to help out their brother, you have to conclude that they don't understand that He is the Messiah and they really don't understand the Messiah's mission. Right? So, so they're going to be a barrier to the coming of the kingdom of God because of their own ignorance. I mean, any kind of way you cut this, 
as far as stopping the kingdom of God, they're on the side of the Jewish authorities that would ultimately crucify Him. So even with the good intentions, they're still going to become a barrier to the Gospel going forward. So it's, it's a big problem that we find in Jesus' own family. Next, we're going to learn a little bit more about the crowd. Look at verse 22. The experts in the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons, he cast out demons. Alright? So we get another group of people that are in the crowd. Not just his family, not just the people in general, the, the standard folks that want to hear Jesus preach, but also... Not only did his family come from Nazareth 30 miles, but the scribes from the Sanhedrin come from Jerusalem now to Capernaum to meet with Jesus and confront him. And these scribes from Jerusalem, notice what they didn't say. They didn't dispute the fact that Jesus had performed miracles or cast out demons. If they could dispute it, don't you think they would have? I'm just, I'm just saying, if you're going to build a case against this political opposition, I mean, I, you know, it's not like we have political opposition in our world today and crazy things going on to you know, smear campaigns against one political figure over another, right? But I'm, I'm just saying, if you're going to smear the opposition and you could claim and people would believe that Jesus did not perform these miracles, that's probably what you would lead with. And yet, that's not what they say at all. It couldn't be disputed. Everyone had already accepted. Yeah, I saw Jesus perform this miracle. I saw Him cast out demons. That's not in question here. What they do instead is they use a smear campaign to talk about the power in which Jesus operates. I'm going to use kind of a catchphrase that you hear today that I think is very relevant in this passage. You ready for it? Fake news. That, that's their strategy here. They're going to take what happened, they're going to twist the narrative, and they're going to throw it back to the crowd and try to manipulate the crowd. It's disinformation at its finest. It's genuinely fake news. And, and that's, that's a political strategy 101, right? That's the first page of the spiritual warfare playbook. playbook is to use fake news and to manipulate the truth. I mean, but, but we see that by tyrants throughout human history. I mean, goodness gracious, Joseph Goebbels had an entire position in the Nazi regi- regime uh, to write propaganda on behalf of the Nazi party, right? If you can control the narrative, you control the crowd. That's what's going on here. I mean, Vladimir Putin not, not too long ago said that, you know, uh, there's only been 500 Russian casualties in, in Ukraine and that the Russians aren't attacking civilians, and uh, the Jewish president of Ukraine is actually a neo-Nazi, right? You see all kinds of this kind of thing going on, the twisting of the truth, and, and why do they do that? Because they know that if they can win over the crowd by this manipulative narrative, then they will win the day. Information is extremely powerful. And in this case, when it comes to spiritual warfare, it's the twisting of what is good and godly and righteous to make it look like it's evil and satanic. And it's the twisting of what is evil and satanic 
to make it look like it's good and godly and righteous. That's what propaganda looks like in spiritual warfare. Now, the accusation in this case is that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul. That's the name for the Lord of the Flies. A.K.A. the Prince of Demons. A.K.A. Satan. And that He is casting out demons in the power of a demonic power. Okay, So, not in the power of God, but in the power of Satan. Now, the prophet Isaiah says this, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. I can't imagine a better example of such a thing than when you call the incarnate Son of God, Satan, and His work powered by demonic power. I can't imagine a more poignant example of calling that which is good evil. And it's truly despicable. But this kind of thing is, again, this is part of all of the spiritual warfare that's occurring in our world today can be seen somewhat through this lens. I mean, we see this same principle at work anytime in our world today, 2,000 years later, that someone says that any God that condemns people for their sin is not good. Or that the Bible is just a manipulative tool used by old people to force others to live like they do. Or that the God of the Bible is an oppressive dictator that Christians invoke to enforce outdated morality. Or that the traditional Christian God is a sexist, homophobic, racist bigot. Or that the Gospel is evil because it excludes people. The twisting of that which is good and godly to call it evil. And see, the reason that this kind of thing works is because once the lie is accepted, once the lie is accepted in that fake news, then it's perpetuated throughout the culture, right? The more people in the crowd believe it, the more plausible it starts to sound when you hear it for yourself, right? Once you have the crowd won over with that piece of news, all of a sudden the truth starts to sound implausible. And the lie starts to sound like truth. That's how this works in spiritual warfare. And that's how we see the twisting of right and wrong in culture. That's how we see this happen 2,000 years later. Smear campaigns are a powerful tool of the enemy in spiritual warfare. And we see this play out here with the Sanhedrin uh, in Mark chapter 3. Now, Coming into verse 23, we start to see Jesus' response to these accusations. And Jesus being who He is, He's able to cut to the quick of it. You know, first by dealing with a rational argument about why you know, what's been proposed against Him falls apart, and then He's going to deal with the spiritual sort of layer behind it in a second. But let's look at Jesus' logical response first. Look at verse 23. So he called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom will not be able to stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan rises against himself and is divided, he is not able to stand and his end has come. But no one is able to enter a strong man's house and steal his property unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can thoroughly plunder his house. Now Jesus again is using a logical argument to combat the lie that's being spread about him, about him to, the, to the crowds. And his argument uses an analogy about a divided house first and foremost. Now, isn't it interesting that you, Jesus uses this analogy knowing that his family is there to restrain him? Talk about a divided house. Jesus being the master teacher is able to cut through both scenarios with one illustration. But nevertheless, he says, it doesn't make sense that Satan would cast out demons because that's ultimately going to harm Satan's own kingdom. And yet, we can see very clearly that Satan's kingdom is alive and well and very strong. It would be a tactical error for him to hurt his own forces. So, when you look around, death, sin, still very prevalent in the world. Clearly, Satan is as strong as ever, is what Jesus is saying. So it doesn't make sense that he would be possessed by Satan. And then secondly, think about this analogy. He says, if you're going to break into another man's house, you better tie up the strong man first before you go to steal his stuff. Okay. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a, a quirky guy when it comes to home security. Does anybody else get in on home security at all? Anybody want to admit it? Okay, a few of you guys will admit it. Um, I'm really weird about this thing. I've like built my own furniture that has hidden weapons in certain places. Um, I've got the standard uh, security alarm system. Uh, my glass doors have a film on them that will make them harder to break. That kind of thing. We run drills. I, I just, I'm really picky about that kind of thing. All right, so occasionally I'll wait till my wife has just gone to sleep. And she lays her head on her pillow. And it doesn't take her long at all to go, to, to go down, okay? It takes me like an hour. She's done in about a minute, all right? As soon as she goes to sleep, I jostle her. And I say, babe, someone's breaking in. This is a drill. What do you do? And sure as a world, she'll pick up that gun. And when I look at her in the eyes, I know I've made a mistake. <laughs> But in all seriousness, if someone were to break into my house, you better believe they better be taking me out first. Because I've already decided in my mind, before they harm my family, they're going, you know, they're going, they're going to have to go through me. Okay? That, that's just the decision that, that I have made. That's the illustration that Jesus is giving here. If you're going to break into the strong man's house, you better tie up the strong man. Now, in Jesus' illustration, Jesus is the thief. He's going to plunder the house of Satan. He is claiming to be stronger than the strong man. And by casting out demons and taking away ground from the enemy, Jesus is taking back what belongs to Yahweh. I mean, so much so, even in the book of Mark, just a few chapters later, we start to see this play out. Do you remember the demoniac 
the demoniac when Jesus uh, rolls up on him at the graveyard there. Multiple you know, other leaders have, have come and tried to cast out these demons. But when Jesus comes up on them, he finds out what? That there, there are a legion of demons in the demoniac. No one else can subdue him. And Jesus, at, the very, at His very Word, is able to cast out a legion of demons. Jesus is stronger than the strong man. Jesus is going to plunder the house of Satan. And that's Jesus' illustration here. And He, and he certainly plays, it, plays itself out later in, in the book. Now, that's Jesus' rational argument in response to the Sanhedrin, to the scribes here. Uh, then we get into Jesus' interpretation of this from a spiritual standpoint. And this is an important layer to the whole dialogue. Look at verse 28. I tell you the truth. People will be forgiven for all sins, even all the blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, this is one of those infamous passages in all of Scripture that when you read it, you inevitably, it has a sobering effect, let's say. Scholars and theologians often refer to verse 29 as the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. A sin that cannot be forgiven. Jesus says so explicitly. And when we read this passage we inevitably ask ourselves, have we committed that sin? Have we been excluded from the Lamb's book of life? So I'd like to take just a minute here and, and give an explanation of what this is referring to. What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit Jesus is referring to in this passage? I'd like to un unpack this real quick. So, the earmark of Jesus' ministry, and what we see even here, is that Jesus operates in the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. He is obeying the Father in terms of submitting to the Father's will, but He is empowered in the power of the Spirit. It's, it's a whole Trinitarian sort of package here. The Messiah coming is a matter of the Father being, you know, being displayed in and through the Son in the power of the Spirit. So what we find even in John 16 John 16 makes this sort of explicit in saying uh, that when Jesus ascended to the Father after the resurrection, that it was a good thing for the church because that meant that the Spirit would come and empower the church to advance the kingdom and convict the world of its sin. The Spirit empowers us. It always go, goes hand in hand with the proclamation of the Gospel. The Spirit goes hand in hand in preaching and proclaiming the good news. The coming of the kingdom of God. So how does one recognize the Gospel? When you hear the Gospel, the Spirit does the work of conviction such that you're convicted to, to see the truth of what the Son has accomplished on the cross and ultimately see that the Father has made a way for you to be right with Him. So we enter into a relationship through the conviction and con confrontation with the Spirit. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject the message of the Spirit, therefore rejecting the work of the Son, and therefore rejecting the will of the Father. You see? 
So rejecting the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, I would say my definition, okay, the way I interpret this passage, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a willful and final rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit, specifically that work which testifies that the kingdom is here and Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? So it's a rejection of the gospel. Okay? What is the unforgivable sin? It is not an accident. You can't fall and just slip up and one day your name is erased from the Lamb, Lamb's book of life. Okay, That's not what this is referring to. It is willful blindness. It's a willful rejection. What we see here in, in this example, Jesus is, remember, is using this in reference to the scribes. They're professional theologians. Of anyone, they should have been able to recognize the work and proclamation of the Messiah. And yet, here they are, not disputing what He's doing. Instead, they are intentionally twisting things to make others reject the work of the Messiah. They are coming dangerously close to walking down the path of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't an accident. And I would say that this sin, this particular sin, carries with it a sense of finality. It's a hardening of the heart such that there's no return. And I, just to be perfectly honest, I don't, I don't know if someone can get there before they die. I, I'm just not sure about that. Um, we see instances where there are hardening of hearts where it just seems like their heart is impenetrable. Now, I just, I'm unsure. I'll just be perfectly transparent this morning to, to, to know whether or not that's possible before you die. Certainly once you die, your opportunity is up, right? You, you've said no through the course of your entire life. But nevertheless, a sense of finality in rejecting the Gospel itself. So much so that when you stand before God at the judgment seat, and He asks about, there's nothing you can say before God about, oh, well, I didn't know, or oh, I, it was an accident. No, no, this was willful and final rejection of the Gospel. And it's a sobering verse, is it not? Yes? You guys awake? When I think about this verse, yes, of course, it makes me think about the lost in culture. That, that hear the proclamation from a Christian, maybe they're not in church, but... They sort of haven't grown up in church, but maybe they, they know generally about Christianity or something like that. So of course, it, there's a sense of urgency to go and reach the lost. But I think that this verse is sobering for me, not for those that grow up outside of the church, but for those that are within the church their whole life, and week in and week out, hear the Gospel, and continue to say no. How many people do you know like that? I mean, don't, don't raise your hand or nod or anything, but how many people do we know that have grown up in the church? They've heard the gospel, and over and over and over again, they've said, No, I refuse. I will not bow my knee. I will not follow and surrender myself to the Lord. I reject. I reject the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I reject what Jesus has done. Or maybe it's fine, but it, it, that's just not for me. Same thing. over and over and over again, they come closer and closer and closer 
to harden their hearts such that they've committed this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it's a dangerous sin. It's, it's probably the most dangerous sin because it's the one that can't be forgiven ultimately. If you have a final uh, intentional refusal to accept the gospel and the work of, the work of Christ. Now, I don't want us to miss the truth of verse 28 because of the trepidation and fear we have from verse 29. Remember, verse 28 says specifically that people will be forgiven for all sins, even the blasphemies they utter, minus that's one other exception. So there's no sin that we can, that we can commit against God except this one that we can't be forgiven for. And I think that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful theological truth that we see here in this passage. Okay. So that's Jesus' response to the scribes. Let's turn now to Jesus' response to his family. All right? Look at verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent word to him to summon him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. He answered them and said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who were sitting around him in a circle, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother and sister and brother. Here again, Jesus speaks to a spiritual reality. And thankfully it's not Mother's Day, because this wouldn't be a good passage to preach for Mother's Day. But Jesus speaks to a spiritual reality and uses this circumstance as a bit of a teaching moment. Remember John chapter 3 with Nicodemus? Nicodemus, the great professional theologian once again, shows up at Jesus' house there at night asking about the kingdom of God. Jesus' response is, you can't enter or see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And this great teacher of Israel says, born again. I was already born again. What do I need to do? Does that make any sense? Nice. Got a little uh, translation over there. It's awesome. Um, but, but the thing is, how can you be born again if I've already been born? And Jesus says, you need to be born of what? The Spirit. Okay. Here we are again accepting the work of the Spirit and communicating to us the truth of the Gospel. To be born again is to enter into the spiritual family of God. That's what the requirement is to be a part of the kingdom of God, to see the kingdom of God. Now here's the point. We've all heard the expression, and it's got some truth to it, that blood is thicker than water. But I'd like to say this morning that the Spirit is thicker than blood. Okay? I'm not stomping on the institution of the family. Obviously, God wants us to have strong families. It's His institution. He put it together. But what the earthly family does is it helps us to understand to a greater degree and in the context of the spiritual family, the, the kingdom of God. It prepares us to be a part of God's family. And so to, you can't exclude one or the other. You need to have both. And having both be healthy is, 
is extremely important. It's everything, right? But that being said, when it comes right down to it, Jesus is recognizing that His earthly family at this point in His ministry have not recognized the kingdom of God and they are not a part of His spiritual family yet. That's a profound truth. For Jesus to say that about His own family. It really is. It's very profound that He would have... Uh, that he would make this statement publicly even. There his family is trying to save his skin, so they think. And here's Jesus proclaiming publicly that they're not even his spiritual family. I mean, really, let that sink in. Now, on the flip side, someone needs to hear this this morning. Jesus is dispelling his political opposition from Jerusalem. Jesus is dealing with his earthly family, on the other hand, there to call him mad and restrain him. And in that situation, and in that context, Jesus halts the entire conversation and turns to his disciples and says, these are my family. Now, of course, he's speaking to the twelve, but the principle holds true for us. The Lord thought it was important, even in the midst of that context, that scenario, for us to know that we are part of His family, the spiritual family, if we follow Him. And that's the most important thing. So, here's my invitation this morning as Mark comes. We've covered a lot of ground here in Mark chapter 3. We've talked about those that have slandered the truth of, of our Lord that have attempted to basically paint a smear campaign against them and, and the influence that that can have on a culture, on a crowd, on a society. And, and the need for us to recognize the truth and not to give in to what seems plausible on the basis of worldly lies, right? Maybe that's something that the, the Lord has brought to your mind this morning. Something, hey, you know what, I've, I've sort of I've been influenced by the world in, in this area or that area or something like that need to bring that to the Lord this morning. But maybe you find yourself being awfully close to Jesus in the sense that you're in His house every week, but you've not joined a spiritual family. I don't know. You know I know some of you guys very well. I, know, I don't know many of you, but I know the statistics. There are an awful lot of church members that are lost people. And so if that's you this morning, don't commit the sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by week in and week out rejecting the Gospel. I invite you this morning to come and talk to Mark or um, one of the elders. You know, If you need to know Jesus and you need to submit to Him and join the spiritual family to, to be a part of the kingdom of God, today is the day. So I invite you. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for how it is so relevant to us. We see the same sorts of patterns in our world today. Thank You for how You give us instructions. Thank You for how Your Spirit empowers us. Thank You for how Your Spirit gives us the ability to bring about the Kingdom in this place. I pray for us this week that we would be hyper-focused on Your priorities. I pray that You would give us the spiritual discernment 
to know what is a lie and what is the truth, to see through the tactics of the enemy, to see through whatever fake news is. And I don't mean that in a political, earthly way, Lord. I, I mean in a spiritual sense. Those lies that the enemy have used to manipulate our minds and hearts to believe something other than Your truth. Give us those eyes this week. We love You, Lord. Thank You so much for our time together. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.